Omagianati Mirandas Yagian and Janasalakaya. Shaksur Unmeltam Yenatas, my Shigravain Maha. Sidanta Palasar and Nikterasikam Hamsam Bilasakam. Aurareka Sudhama Sevagadhanam Misham Babhakti Prada. Yatsna Yuktivit Shakshana, Togabido Vaisista Shaktiya Saravandeham Tripurari Namakayatim, Sri Bhakti Vedantina. Vande Sri Krishna Chaitana Nitananda Sahorido, Godadaya Pushpavanto Chitros and Dotamonodo. Vandeham Sri Ram Krishna, Abhaya Charanasako, Sukado Paramanando, Sundaro Subalapriyo. Aho Bhagim Aho Bhagim, Nandago Pabrajokasham, Yan Mitram Paramanandam Purna Brahma Sanatanam. He Krishna Karunas Indu Dinabandu Jagatpate, Gopesha Gopikanda Radhagandana Mustate. Tapta Kantanagorangi Radhevrindavanishvari, Prisabhanu Sudadevi Hari Pranamami Hari Priye. Sagurudev Ki Jai, Shivaishnavrinda Ki Jai. Now let's see, welcome Bhimalangiriri, Brajhari Das and Braj Bhakti. Thank you for being here. And uh, let's see, let me just make sure everything's running well. Yeah, okay. So I don't remember how many of you were here with me for the first class. I know, well, at least a few of you were there. And uh, after the class, I started thinking like, how could I have made it? better or somehow more engaging and I really I started feeling like I should really like try to involve you guys more and have it be a, kind of like more of a exploration together than me just talking and you getting bored with this guy just going off on whatever he's going off on so I'm not gonna mute you guys um, this time I'm just gonna have you you can unmute yourself whenever you want and I would really like to uh, have you uh, be part of this whole thing. And so with that in mind, I would like to start with, um, let me just see my notes here, with uh, basically recapping the first class together. So what I'd like you guys to do is whatever points like were salient to you or like points that resonated with you, whatever you remember from the class, um, let's kind of like go through it together. And, and I'd love to hear from you, uh, especially if there's anything in the class that you're able to think about during the week or like use in your life or whatever. So any volunteers, let's see what you remember. Martin's lifting his hand. Uh, I got a question according to one thing you said the previous class. If I uh -huh. remember, you said something that the environment, um, like we shouldn't um, excuse our not uh, development according to the environment. Like we, we shouldn't put our, I, I, I can find the word in English, like, um, like it's not the fault of the, our environment that we are not progressing basically, right? Oh, and not then, like, yeah, um, yeah. This, not, yeah, you, you understand the point, right? Yeah. Okay. And in the same day, uh, I, I attend a class with uh, Vaishnava Maharaj, and he mm -hmm. said, he, he quotes uh, Sriya Sriya Maharaj, saying that, um, a quote that was kind of, we are a product of our close environment. 
So I was thinking like must be like kind of a balance in between those two quotes, right? Like in those two statements. Yeah. So I was thinking the whole, the whole week about that. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I guess, I mean, in some ways you could say we're always a product of our environment in a way that, that we're extremely like affected by it. And the point I was, one point I made last week was that we do have like free will to decide what environment environment we want to be in. So then what Chidharmaj was saying there is basically like either you choose to be in the environment of, of the material influence or you choose to be in the environment of the Swarup Shakti. But like we can't really like be anything without in our without our environment. Like the soul, I mean it has qualities, but the quality the qualities of the soul can't really like play out without an environment and that's why like if you're not in an environment then that's like brahman realization which is basically from our point of view it's like nothing almost that yeah that's what i would say i mean i would have to actually go back into like the uh paramatma sandarbha and see if that's totally accurate what i just said about the brahman realization but that's my understanding that because it's i mean it is a sort of so, one kind of an environment but really it's not, it doesn't define us in any way. So I think that's, um, that's how I take it. Like I definitely was not trying to say that we can be whatever we want to be without any kind of, kind of environment that, you know, that doesn't really like mean anything in a way. So, yeah. Does that make sense or? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Thank you. Nice. Thank you. Any other volunteers? Any? Let's try to recap some of the other points I made last week. Um, so I remember this, you were talking about uh, the will um, and how we have to um, enter into this thing, the space in between um input and response or how is the, how is the word? response yeah so that that's and i feel like you were talking about, about that for a long time but i'm not i'm not sure uh, uh what more details there were about that yeah that i feel like that was kind of like the gist of the class that there there is like something that we can do like the free will that is in that space between the stimulus and the response mm. yeah very good, very good. Anything else? Um, I just, I just like remember. I, th I thought I had like when, when, like when I hear about will, um, uh, you know, to kind of seize that uh, kind of power that we have, the willpower. Uh, I find it more. E I don't know if it's just a language thing, but I, I find it more easy to relate to when it's called like the sense of agency mm -hmm. because like then there's not this like problem of trying you know trying to like figure out is there if there is free will or not but we at least we, we definitely feel like we have <laughs> free will and then like uh, from that feeling we can uh, develop further mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah that, that's that is a nice term your free will somehow sounds kind of like being this like secondhand god or something i guess free will like i will or whatever but then agency is like everybody 
acknowledges that we like act in the world or we, we are like active beings. So yeah, that's a, that's a very nice point. Much appreciated. Anybody else? Well, if nobody else has, has anything to say, I think that is a pretty good recap. I think one thing I would uh, re-emphasize is that that we have free will, but like in the state that we are in right now, it's very much um, like um, contracted. We and we the the whole process of like becoming more intentional as sadhakas is to like try to build up on the little free will that we have, or like trying to like kind of like bring us out from underneath the material conditioning, how in our environment like basically makes us act as, as if we didn't have free will. And the more we are under the modes, the more we will act like, like we don't have free will. So yeah, I guess that is, that's kind of like the whole thing in a nutshell. And then I, there's one concept about this still a little bit more about what I was talking about in the first uh, class that like really makes, makes people or makes us understand better what this whole concept of like proactivity and reactivity is. And uh, it's this idea of the circle of influence and circle of concern. And to kind of like make illustrate this point better, I wanna use this awesome feature here called the whiteboard, let's see. Uh huh. Share screen. How does this thing work? Okay, here we go. Whiteboard. All right. Are you guys seeing a whiteboard and a pen? Yes. Okay, excellent. So let's see here. It'll take a fat pen like that. Okay, so here, here's a dot. I'm, I'm explaining this because some viewers might just listen to this in the future as a podcast. So anyway, I'm explaining everything that I'm doing. So I'm drawing a dot in the center and that is you right there. You're the dot. And then around us, around the dot, there's this circle of influence that we can actually influence in, in, of our environment. We have some kind of influence, like whatever it can be, like based on our decisions and choices and behaviors, we can uh, have some kind of influence in, an, in our environment. But since we're not God, since we're not like omnipotent, omniscient, it won't, you can't influence your whole, whole environment. So we have that smaller circle around us. That's basically the sphere of our influence. And then there's a bigger circle around that circle of influ influence that could be called the circle of concern, which means that we're aware of that environment, but we can't have any effect over it. And so you, you, if you think about say like, your circle of influence could be, of course, your decisions, your body, and then also like your friends, your family, stuff like that. You have some influence over that. The bigger influence is this influence uh, circles, circle of, <coughs> excuse me, of concern, which basically means the rest of the world, like whether there's going to be a nuclear war or whether Trump's going to be reelected or whatever it is, like stuff that we can be concerned about, but we have no power over what's going to happen in our like greater um, circumstance. And the difference between proactive people who try to be intentional about their lives and people who are reactive and who just kind of live like sort of like animals in a way that they just react to the stimulus that comes their way 
they react in, in these knee-jerk kind of like um what's the word uh instinctual ways the difference is that the proactive people try to live in this inner circle of the circle of influence they, they put their whole focus on this circle of influence and especially in the dot right in the center and so the idea is that you really focus on kind of like gandhi i mean that is like kind of like the proactive mantra what he said like be the change that you want to see in the world that is like proactivity in a nutshell whereas then the reactive people they live in a circle of concern like they obsess over politics, for example. And I have to admit, I fell into this trap um, last year when Trump, when there was that whole Trump election. I normally don't want to like bother too much, but somehow it was so intense and I got sucked into it. And it was very disturbing. Like I could not pop out of this, like they call it doom scrolling. Like you just get overwhelmed by like all the bad news and you doom scroll and it's really really a bad space to be in and and the interesting thing is the more you get into the circle of concern it starts uh diminishing your circle of influence because you you focus in the wrong place and then your actual influence starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller and it's it's so like ironic when you think about it because the whole point of focusing on the circle of concern is this idea that you can influence your greater circle of uh, like your environment, but actually it ends up even like diminishing your actual effectiveness and your actual um, like level, level of influence. And Krishangi said something really interesting in, in her talk, uh, was it last Tuesday, this Tuesday, she said that uh, if we put it in these terms, basically what she was saying, she got into politics because she wanted to affect this circle of concern, the, the larger circle. But what she then found out is that after years and years of being in the city council and, and spending so much time and energy into trying to change things, she realized that really she would have made much more, a bigger change even in the world if she would just focused on being a really good sadhaka and being really serious about spiritual life. I, I, I hope I'm not like misrepresenting her but that's what i took from it so basically if she would have focused on her circle of influence and the dot in the center she could have more affected her circle of concern than being into politics from politics for many years and that was really powerful to me and i'll give you one more example of this circle of influence and circle of concern uh, well one thing i want to say is if you think about your own life and where you're focused and it you can really kind of like gauge how proactive you are based on where your focus is and i've found this extremely useful this like kind of like conceptual orientation of these two different areas in terms of trying to understand that i'm not getting sucked into the reactionary reactive space and so what happened the other day was i was digging uh these holes on guru Maharaj's hill my guru Maharaj's hill I was planting these grasses in front of his house. If you've been to Audaria, basically, my Maharaj's house is at the top, and then there's this hill that goes down to this flat area where the temple is. And so I was planting things on the on the hill by his house, and the soil is extremely hard in Audaria. It's like straight clay, and it was a heat wave. It must have been like 36, 37 degrees Celsius. It was around like close to 90. Fahrenheit. It was actually it was over 90 Fahrenheit, and it was a tough situation. The so soil was hard. The work was really hard. So I was using this big black bar, 
And so I was sweating and it, I was doing it for hours and it was starting to get a little tough for the mind, you know. And so there are these really annoying little uh, flies in Audaria. They are like tiny little flies and they fly straight into your nostrils and they fly straight into your ears and straight into your eyes. They, they're like the most annoying little things you can imagine. And it's always like straight in the things that annoy you the most. And so there I was like in sweating and like beating with this huge metal bar for hours. And these guys start flying in my eyes and ears and nostrils. And I started getting really agitated, like, man, this is just too much. You know, these guys, it was specifically those flies. I just wanted to like burn them with my vision, like Shiva, you know, when, when uh, Kamadev tried to annoy him or something. And then I was able to catch myself by using this, this idea of the circle of influence and the circle, circle of concern. And so what I realized is really the best thing to do, and this really relates to service, I think, very well, because you can think about if, you, if you, your mind gets agit, agitated, a lot of times it blocks you from doing service well, or like being focused on service, you get focused on the externals or whatever is agitating your mind. So I caught myself in that situation because I started thinking about this circle of concern and circle of influence. Oh, and the funny thing was when that happened, I was thinking about what to say in the next class and I had all these like fancy ideas. And then I was completely agitated myself by these little gnats, you know? And so I realized what, was, what I was doing was the flies were in the circle of concern. There was nothing I could do about the flies. Well, the, the only thing I could do was to swat them away with my hand. And so, but the fact that I was getting so annoyed with them, that was purely in the circle of concern because I can't, even if I swat them with my hands, they will come back. And so then I like tried, I adjusted my thinking. I was like, well, they will come back and that's okay. So I'll only do what's in my actual circle of influence, which is to swat them away, but without any agitation. It's just, I'll take it just as like breathing, you know, like breathing is something you have to do constantly. And it could be annoying if you thought, thought that you could do something about it but you can't so then you just breathe and you don't think about it it's just part of the environment so i started thinking about the flies as just being part of the environment and then amazingly it's just i wasn't bothered by them at all i only did what i could do which was swat them without any agitation and then they, they would go away for a little longer and two things happened the first thing that happened was i realized the gnats weren't coming as much as i thought they were those flies because I wasn't agitated by it. Like agitation adds to this feeling of there being like much more of some negative thing than there is. And the second thing that really hit me was that because I was so agitated by the flies, I, my circle of influence, which was the, the quality of my service started diminishing because I was too focused on the flies. And when I realized that I'd given the, these flies this amazing amount of power to like diminish first of, all, first of all my circle of influence and affect the quality of my service on that level, it was just like immediately like when that like kind of uh, uh, sambanda or that like uh, what the conceptual understanding of what's going on when I when that became clear to me, then I was immediately able to be just like this is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So anyway, that was my experience from last week from what I was talking about in the class. And the flies can be very annoying, but it's all in the circle of concern. And from that idea, um, we can 
what I want to go to from there is since I want to include you guys more in this whole process and try to make it a more reciprocal thing, I made a little poll and uh, let's see, I want to do another share here. Uh, let's go share. So are you guys seeing this uh, little poll here? Yes. Okay, thank you. So this is not something I'm I'm not expecting you to answer uh, this like um publicly, but just think about this in your life. I, the thing is like we're thinking about our circle of influence right now. Let's like focus on the fact like where where are we at? How do we feel about our situation in the world and our situation in life in general? And so just think about put think of take pick one of these numbers based on what you feel where you're at. And then just remember what that number is. Just give it a minute or something to think about. And then another poll. Let's see here. Huh. This one didn't work out so well after all. Oh, wait. Sorry, some technical difficulties here. Did you, are you guys seeing another thing or is it still the same? Oh, okay. That's weird. It's giving me a different one. Okay. So just think about that as well. And, and remember the number. And then just think about it to yourself, like how different, if the number is the same in these both, both uh, things or not. And the interesting thing to there, there to think about is if, your sadhaka personality and your material personality are kind of like off kilter because if you get different numbers there's there has to be some kind of like incongruency between the two but just let's start you know keep that in mind as we go through this whole thing just think about really what i want to do with this class is to like focus on like like who do you want to be Basically, we try to like mine the the deepest, like um, like most fundamental values that we hold right now, and just become more aware of what we actually want from life, and who do who do we really want to be, and then where are we at right now, and then what we is that what we want to be? Because we all like we have this idea of okay, we're devotees, so we're supposed to want this and this and this. But then at the same time, because we are like sadhakas are lower level sadhakas are a mixed bag by definition, where a mixture of that material influence and the spiritual influence, then we what I really want to try to do with some of these exercises and thought experiments is to get in touch with like where we actually are at in terms of what our deep values are, and then how to go from if they are like totally or not even totally, but somewhat different from what the devotional goal is, how do we sort of 
bridge that gap between the two different, almost like two different identities. And um, to, to really get in touch with like what we actually want and what our deepest values and oops, hold on a second. Sorry about that. I'm here in at my mother-in-law's in Silicon Valley. They're building new houses all the time. So that's what's going on in the neighborhood. So let's see, what was I saying? Um, oh yeah, the, so a really, really good way of getting in touch with like what our actual values are and what we want out of life is to uh, think about death and think about like the finality of like, if you knew you were dying, how would you change your life? Like, how would you actually live differently? Because it forces us to like, when you know that something's about to end, like, you know, that your life's about to end, it forces you to like do away with all the exterior extra stuff that, um, that is on top of your actual values, because like the, all the everyday issues of like taking care of your body and like getting along with your work you know colleagues or like we have these massive amount of like these kind of like provisional worries and things we have to uh, be worried about in our lives all that when you think about death all that's going to be removed so i'd like to do this <clears throat> excuse me this quick uh thought experiment of like being in the situation that you actually come face to face with the fact that you're going to die. So if you <clears throat> could imagine just for a moment being in a, say like a doctor's office and try to be like visceral, like try to think about your, like visualize the whole thing through your senses. So you're sitting on this examination table and you can feel the fake leather under your butt and under your arms, uh, under your like palms. And, you know, there's that awful smell that's in the hospitals that like sterile rubbing alcohol and some kind of anti anti germ, you know, whatever that stuff is, that kind of that like sterile smell, you smell that smell and you're waiting for the doctor to come in the room. And so the doctor comes and she tells you that they, they were supposed to take just some normal like blood samples, basic like checkup, health checkup. And they found out that you have some kind of rare blood disease that will deteriorate your health in one year. And in one year, you're gonna just, you won't like slowly deteriorate in that you'll have your full energy for a year. And then all of a sudden you'll basically collapse and die. And there's nothing they can do about it. You know, you only have one year to live. And so like, if you really place yourself in that situation right now, you know exactly this day from this moment on, you know, you have one year to live. What would you do differently? Like where, like think about it in terms of your roles, for example, in life, like you might be a mother or a father, a teacher, and especially think about it in the relation in relation to like being a devotee, being the disciple of a guru, if you are a disciple of a guru, 
or you have people that you inspire or have inspired spiritually, just think about your life as a whole in terms of all the different roles. And like, what would you do if you knew you had just one year left? Now, I'm going to give you a little, just a minute or two to think about that and, and try to, I mean, I, this might sound or seem kind of hokey. I almost feel like we're talking about this stuff because it's so like new agey or something in a way. But the reason I'm doing this against my, <laughs> my own, you know, sense is that I know from experience that this, these kind of thought exper experiments are extremely useful in getting in touch with, with the kind of like the deeper values that are a lot of times kind of under the surface during your everyday life. So just give it a couple of minutes and think about how you would live your, live your last year if you knew that you would definitely be dead in a year. Maybe if you have a pen and paper, you could even write something down. I'll just give you a minute to think about it. Okay, hopefully that was enough time for you. So then whatever you wrote down, then the question is like, why are we not um, doing that already? Like, why is it that if we knew we had one year, we would do these things? But like, why is it that we're not doing it right now? It's not like we're going to live forever. And the interesting thing is, Krishna actually says in the Mahabharata, there's a section where he says, that the, he's being questioned by this demon about different things. And one of the questions is that, what is the most amazing thing in the world? And Krishna says, the most amazing thing in the world is that everything is dying around us at all times. There's death like everywhere. And yet still we think that we're immortal, immortal. Like we have this sense, and I know this from my own experience, and I think everybody can relate to this, that we have the sense that we're not going to die, that everybody else is going to die, but it's not going to happen to me. No problem. And uh, to me, it's a clear indication that our souls are eternal, because why would we otherwise ever think like that? Everything around us says that we're going to die. It's like this megaphone, like screaming in our ears, dude, you're going to die. It's like, no, no, not me. And so like, then the question is, we can like infer, we can like see our environment and we can know for sure we're going to die in this body, this body and this like whatever we have going here is going to die. So why is it that we're not changing our lives according to how we actually would want to live if we knew that we're going to die in a year? And in this connection, there was a, this like huge hit book that came out uh, a few years ago by this Australian nurse <clears throat> who nursed, uh, excuse me, let me scrap a little water here, who nursed people who were who had just like a couple of weeks to live. She was a nurse to people like that for years. And this, so she started this blog about the regrets that those people had. And so then it became so popular, that blog, that she ended up writing a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. 
And I just wanted to do another screen share because I'm so into the screen sharing now to show you what those five, um, five uh, top regrets were. Here's number one. Let's see. So number one is, I'm reading this out for the ones who are not seeing the screen. I wish I had had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. So this can be like really relevant in terms of devotees because since we're like people in the world and we're devotees at the same time, it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking that, well, I'm not gonna be super out about my de devotional life because what are people gonna think about that? Or whatever it is, like always this, like basically it's just living according to excuse me, other people's expectations. And this is also, this relates to what I was talking about earlier about the, the power to choose is that if you always live to other people, according to other people's expectations, you're like basing your life on, in a lot of ways, kind of like the, the circle of concern. Like you're not really going deep in and thinking about what your values are and like what is the, the, the most beneficial thing for me personally it's always about like how is the environment thinking about me how is the immediate environment like reflecting me back to myself instead of like getting in touch with who you actually are and who you want to be in terms of devotion so that's pretty interesting even in the world it's like people when they start dying they all these like exterior concerns kind of like fly away and then they're like oh, like why was i not more true to myself so that was number one. And let's see, number two is I wish I hadn't worked so hard. So this is really interesting too. Like there's so many false values that we have in terms of like who we want to be in the world. And working really is a means to, to try to actualize these false values of like who we want to be. And um this is i've heard extremely common um and it makes sense because you know when you think about like status for example what is your status gonna matter when you're when you're dying you know nobody's gonna care who you were when you're like completely infirm and lying in bed and waiting to die so it's funny because they seem so obvious these points but once you're in the like influenced by the material environment you get covered over like our intelligence gets covered over by like what actually is important and that's what anartha means anartha means like false value on artha and that's we get covered by these false values in that way and in this connection i madhavananda prabhu who's uh a disciple of Sripat Gorgovinda Maharaj, he likes comics and he posted this one meme that I just have to share with you guys. It was so funny. Let's see here. Uh, okay. He posted it a few months ago and I, I thought it was so hilarious. This cannot go without sharing. Uh, where is it? Uh, I guess you guys are seeing it because you're laughing. <laughs> That's good. So I, this is a sharing thing is like so confusing. I don't know. I don't see so anyway, for those who don't see the video, there's this old guy, the meme has this old guy in a hospital bed and he's thinking, I wish I spent more time arguing online. And that's another one of these things like 
that's a perfect example of what the, the circle of concern is. Like think about arguing online. You're actually spending like your precious minutes and hours. A lot of times it's days and weeks for a lot of people arguing online over something completely useless a lot of times that you will never be able to change. Like the only thing you can actually change by arguing online is your own mood, which is going to go south really fast. So that's the only thing you can actually change by arguing. But anyway, let's get back to the five biggest regrets of dying people. So number three, oops, sorry. Number three is, I wish I hadn't worked, no, sorry. I wish I, I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And uh, that's, yeah, I, there's not much comment about that. It's pretty, pretty uh, straightforward. And then number four. Oh, I just wanted to add that these, when you see the explanations underneath these ones, these are by the author. So she's explaining uh, basically what, her experience of, of these results were. Number four is, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And of course, I was trying to think of all these uh, regrets in terms of devotees and how it might play out in a devotee's life. And this to me could be easily interpreted as like, I wish I had stayed more in touch with the Sangha and with my guru and like the, the right environment, like the right kind of like um, uh, social network. And I think I've heard that a lot of devotees who have fallen off the wagon, sort of, they, that, that this is one of their big regrets that they, they couldn't stay uh, connected to the devotees. They went away. And uh, let's see. The last one, which to me was one of the most interesting ones, is... Um, oh, shoot, I'm missing so number five is i wish that i had let myself be happier and one thing that this author here says especially was really interesting to me and it says many of these old people did not realize until the end that happiness is a choice they had stayed stuck in old patterns patterns and habits the so-called comfort of familiarity overflowed into their emotions as well as their physical lives so this is like a fantastic idea uh, really nicely like plays into what we've been talking about about the the uh freedom to choose basically and you don't think of a happiness as a choice but if you understand the right principles behind uh like the principles that are worth following then it really is your choice to be happy because you if you choose to align yourself with those values all those like principles of like Krishna consciousness or bhakti that will make you happy if you do it in a way that's like sustainable for you. And if you just, I don't know, to me, it was like significant that somebody who is not a devotee, I don't know if she's spiritual, but the fact that she realized that she made that point that it is your choice to be happy. It's really fantastic to me, really interesting to me. So yeah, those are the five biggest regrets. And the, I guess if then we start thinking about like, how can we apply these ideas to our own lives? 
And to me, the obvious kind of, uh, oh, let me get back to, let's see, are you seeing my face again, Sham? Okay, good. So then the obvious thing, like we hear like these people, hundreds of people who like say what they're regretting when they're about, about to die. It's such a great like opportunity for us to actually uh, take advantage of the kind of advice that we can't first live and then do it ourselves in a way that we can't be just about to die and then learn from that and then come back to you know living those ideas. I mean, we will in the next life, but we'll be mostly covered by the next embodiment. So it's not the same thing. And so then it would really make sense right now to like take advantage of this, this wisdom that these dying people have given us and put that in the devotional context. And so then when you, when you <clears throat> start thinking about how to basically like, first of all, in the first class, we came to the conclusion that we can choose our own response to our environment. Uh, as much as our free will allows us. I mean, so obviously it's not this complete freedom because we are tied in many ways, but there is actual freedom in terms of our agency as, as Shamananda would put it. So like then, so, okay, we have this agency. So then how are we gonna kind of like design our lives in a way that is in line with the principles of bhakti and also what's in truly in our own interest? And that I would say like the best thing to start constructing our lives based on these, this wisdom and these realizations is to start with the idea, with the end in mind, basically. So you start kind of like vision, envisioning what you want your life to be and who you want to be based on what you would want to be, what you would, would have wanted to be when you're dying. So you start with the end in mind. And uh, I don't know, this for me, this has been a really powerful meditation. And it kind of does away with all the loose things in between, like you and your actual true values. And um, this idea about the beginning with the end in mind, one really important thing that is connected to it is this idea that there's always two creations. There's always the mental creation, whatever you do, or the mental like, visualizing or envisioning of what you want to do and then the actual act of doing that thing say like in terms of anything you do say like if you want to build a, a house you can you have to start it with the blueprints like you first you rack your brain you think of every possible situation of <clears throat> or every possible factor of what you want to consider when you build the final building or the house and so you start with that mental creation of what you want and then you run the thoughts by somebody else, for example, an architect, or you bounce ideas off with your friends. And of course, in this context, it would be the guru that you, you have an idea of how you want to live your devotional life. And then you consult your God siblings, you consult your guru, and you read the scriptures and try to get this good idea of what specifically for you, for your psychology and the kind of like the packaging that you have as a sadhaka what would be the most fulfilling devotional life for you in this body basically and so you get clear first of all you get clear on what it is that you want and and you get clear on your your specific psychology and and personhood as a sadhaka and then you start basically building your life around 
those those realizations or that like understanding of of what you like and what you actually want as a devotee and this is what when i call this uh whole series the intentional sadhaka this is like kind of like the core of the intentional intentionality or the intentional sadhaka idea is that you don't just like randomly bounce around and try to do sadhana in the meantime when you're like being you know smacked around by the material environment but you stop and you like you take charge of the fact that you can actually decide and then you use your mental capacity uh, like you use your imagination and the kind of like conscience or your like paramatma sort of and your guru's uh input and your god siblings or whoever you trust in this way and you like try to kind of like get a very clear idea of what you actually want and then the, the third class is going to be talking about how you actually go about that and there's many things i could talk about how to get clear on what you really want and and who you are and what you want to be who who you want to be like for example you can write it out as some, sort of kind of like a personal uh, declaration of independence or constitution or something like this is what i want in relation to different roles that i have in this life and then and just keep it as a written statement so that you can refer to it whenever you start like you feel like you're starting to veer off or something like that or like there's you can just meditate on the fact that we're impermanent in this body and consciousness or this like mind and i mean there's many many ways that uh different books talk about how to do this or you might come up with your own ways but i don't really have time to go into all these different things but if you feel like this would be a like a useful exercise for you to get clarity on what you actually want and then start working towards that as a devotee then um, i highly recommend reading certain books like the seven habits or <clears throat> many other similar books i mean it's good to know that the books are well grounded in the right principles but I, I would suggest the seven habits that's by far the best book i've found and just like put the work in <clears throat> to kind of make your blueprint of blue blueprint of what you want to uh be and uh one thing i still want to say is as devotees I'm going to finish with this, but uh, as devotees, because we are a mixed bag in the lower levels of sadhana, um, we can easily have these like anarthas that we think is the true self or who we really want to be and stuff. And to get clarity on like of, on our like false sense that feels like the real sense is extremely helpful to think about the different kind of like alternative centers that we might have like for example you can be family centered but you don't even realize it like you actually the highest value that you have in your life is your family uh, or work or status status is a big one or even like you can have this sangha centeredness that is actually unhealthy like you think that that you're defined by your sangha completely and that that there's kind of like a separation between the actual vani of your guru or the the teachings and the the words of your guru and then the sangha because we are humans and we we uh socialize and form groups in a certain way that comes from our embodiment a lot of the time so it's always a mixed bag 
and some people get into this church or sangha consciousness where like just having status in that sangha is like the highest thing and you mix that up with the actual spirituality so like that's one center like anyway my point here is that it's very useful to like try to think of these these different centers that we might place ourselves for that we are not even aware of and as a very sad example of that, I'd like to tell a short story of my grandfather uh, who, who basically had a false center and he figured it out, realized it at the end of his life. He was a pretty well-known concert, classical concert pianist in Finland. And he, uh, he was wounded in the war and he was taken to uh, like a, Alp, a hospital in the Alps in Switzer Switzerland. And so when he was recovering there, he fell in love with one of the doctors who happened to be my grandmother, a Swiss uh, doctor from this aristocratic family. And so they fell in love and they, it was like straight from some Harlequin novel, like just ridiculous, like romance, you know, but then they moved back to Finland after a couple of years. And my grandfather was a highly, highly ambitious person. He, he wanted to be somebody like, it was so important for him to have that status of being an accomplished person. And so he tried to be a concert pianist, but he, and he was for many years, but then he didn't quite, quite cut it to the like upper echelon of, of the concert pianists. So he became a professor at the local university and he started his own department of music department, everything. And he constantly pushed <clears throat> for being somebody. And he was extremely like aggressive as a person or like, like he just filled the room with his ego wherever he went. And my grandmother who was a really cool person who actually give, gave me my first Gita. It was Max Muller's Gita. She was like a spiritual person. And so she was a doctor in Finland, but she was completely overpowered my grand, by my grandfather. And she was like the nicest person in the world, always trying to serve others and be kind and everything. And my grandfather was this aggressive kind of like a narcissist, really. And that went on for like decades and decades. And then in the end of their lives, my grandmother got, she got demented partially and she got sick. Uh, like she, her heart wasn't, it was malfunctioning. So, so she went to the hospital and something happened to her. I think she realized she was going to die. And she, she just like finally like flipped out on my grandfather and she had had enough of it. And she, cause she was a little wild as a teenager. She kind of reclaimed that she started stealing from her like inmates in the hospital room. Like in the night, she would sneak out to their cabins and like steal stuff, uh, cabinets. And that was something she would never ever have done in her so-called right mind. But the most interesting thing was that she got really aggressive towards my grandfather because she, she had like decades worth of resentment because she had lived for him instead of really like getting clear on what she wants and like, his aggressiveness and narcissism had basically like pushed her down and she got really resentful of him. And she was just like, you know, slapping his hand off of, off of her, you know, her hand when he came to see her and was just very like dismissive. And the exact opposite happened to my grandfather. He became like the nicest person in the world. And he was so kind and considerate and had completely given up on this idea of being anybody. And it was always like, asking us like, how are you doing? I was like shocked when it started happening. I was like, whoa, like, this is a totally different person. But he had always had that side underneath him, underneath the layers of ambition and like false values. And then he realized when it was too late that really what mattered to him the most was my grandmother. Like that was what he actually lived for. 
and at that point my grand grandmother was just like totally like whatever you know and so to me that's a very cautionary cautionary tale of like not try to chase these ambitions and and false values because when the time comes when all that's going to be taken away it means nothing at that point anymore so it's better to try to focus on the things that really matter matter to us and then just try to build our lives intentionally around what really matters for us and that's all i wanted to say today um then there's a couple of comments. Oh, very nice comment. Uh, well, Raj Hari first says, negative and positive impetus. I, that must have been connected to a point I was making. I can't remember when this came in. Maybe Raj Hari can comment more if he wants to. And then Sarada saying comments, a very nice comment. She says, I will regret if I don't say dandavats for these points, which are very valuable. Thank you, Gurnish Prabhu. Thank you, Sarada saying That's really nice of you. And then Pundarik Das says, by Stephen, Stephen Covey. Yeah, that's him. Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And yeah, that book's really, really amazing. Um, I There's a lot of stuff that doesn't pertain to devotees. And you can just like try to take the, the essence of it and apply it to devotional life. But the cool thing about the book is that a lot of it is based on these basic dharmic ideas. And so because we are devotees who live in the world mostly, we're not all renunciates, we can actually like we can apply these same principles to, to having a sattvic dharmic life on top of being devotees. It's really it's amazing how you can scale these same principles. They're just universal and they work. My experience has been they work anywhere from the bottom to the top. And yeah, highly recommend it. So yeah, that was that. And if anybody has any comments or questions, let's let's hear them. Oh, especially if anybody has like near-death experiences <laughs> that have brought some huge insights, that I'd be very interested to hear. And Martin says, thank you very much for these classes, Gurunsta Prabhu. Thank you, Martin. Thanks for being here oh is security no. huh. i see bindumati saki has unmuted herself i wonder if do you want do you have a comment i can't hear you right now Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, first of all, I would like to ask you what you would do different in your life if you know that you're going <laughs> to die next year. <laughs> That's a very, very good question. Let's see. Have I unpinned my, oh yeah, I'm going to remove the pin so everybody will see Sean Sakirati here. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I thought about this this morning because I figured somebody might ask me this. <laughs> and I have to say, I, I, I have such a, like an amazing situation right now. I don't think I would change anything. I mean, I live with my guru. I live downstairs from my guru. I have a really, really good relationship with my wife who's a very serious devotee. And 
I do service all day. So I, I really, <laughs> there, there's some regrets I have how I, about how I've treated certain people in the past. And I have thought about, because uh, I sometimes I meditate on this thing, like, okay, I have like one year left. I have six months left or something like that. And I think about them. That, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. It's like these certain regrets about not treating certain people well. So I would say like, that's what I would do. And I should actually do this now that I had to publicly admit it. So I should just write them right away and be like, sorry about that. I was a jerk. So yeah, I, that's what I would say. I, don't, I have no big regrets in that way. I, I'm extremely happy with my own life right now. But thank you for the question. Anything else? Yes. Uh, one thing is that my mom, she also works in a hospice since hmm. years. So I'm gonna ask her, if she she had if if she talked because she she tell, she tells me many stories when what is happening this and that but she actually never told me like if they have regrets or something so i will ask her that yeah that's perfect if you could ask like within this week and then you can share with us next week if possible yeah. oh, that's a great idea fantastic excellent also, i had three times near to that experiences Wow. And uh, I, it's very strange, but I never kind of thought about the past, what happened in my life. I more thought like where I want to be right now. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it's not very helpful, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like the near death yeah. experiences happen so fast that. <clears throat> There's no time to think like I fell from a horse on asphalt, my head first in, in Costa Rica. And there is no time to think like, ah, let's see, I have a yeah. fraction of a second. Like, what should I have done differently? You know, yeah, no. it doesn't work like that. No, it was more like, oh, I want to be home. You know, that, that was my, my strongest mm. Like, I don't want to die here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we have Radha Madhava Dasi. She has her hand up here. Go ahead, Radhamadav, if you hear me. Hare Krishna. Hare Bo. Si se puede traducir en español a inglés. Okay. Pues digamos que respecto a lo de la experiencia de muerte y como la reflexión de ese experimento mental, a mí me queda como especialmente este último año. Uh -huh. Ya. Yeah. Ah, porque, bueno, uno, eh, pues realmente uno no sabía que se estaba enfrentando, que era esto de la pandemia. Y, por ejemplo, en mi país, mi país es un país muy desigual y hay mucha pobreza y condiciones muy, muy tristes materialmente. Y digo tristes porque, en serio, a mí personalmente, pues que no soy tan elevado, pues me da muy duro como ver a la gente pasar hambre, morir de hambre, a los animales, etc.
Pues sí, bien, es cierto que a nosotros nos enseñan como a no tener como esa sensación o ese dolor por lo que pasa en el mundo, pues en algún aspecto es la única experiencia como de la cual somos un poco más conscientes, ¿no? Lo otro es como una experiencia que queremos adquirir. Y entonces recuerdo como mucho lo que aprendí en la universidad, por ejemplo, eh, que Heidegger decía que uno tenía la experiencia de muerte a través de otros, ¿no? Entonces, por ejemplo, en mi caso, el ver morir personas de hambre. Y entonces, pues a raíz de ver esas situaciones de muerte por personas que sufren de hambre o animales, incluso durante la pandemia la muerte de varios tíos y mi abuelita, eh, me hicieron pensar como mucho exactamente que, como, exactamente como, como quería proyectarme yo. O sea, yo realmente no sé si voy a acabar mi vida en un accidente de tráfico o en cualquier circunstancia así. Y por un tiempo como que eso me ayudó, por ejemplo, a tener un sábana un poco estable, ¿no? Como despertarme todos los días temprano, cantar ya, apavorar. pero me he dado cuenta, pues igual me gustó mucho ese experimento mental, porque si no sé si hace como esa pregunta, no por el miedo a morirse, sino por la necesidad a usar bien el tiempo, uno podría en algún aspecto ser más consciente de realmente quién quiere ser uno y dejar de postergar lo realmente importante, porque igual con el tiempo a mí me pasa que ya empiezo otra vez a sentir que la muerte no está respirando cerca de uno, bueno, la muerte como desaparecer en ese cuerpo porque, eh, y quizá todo vuelve a cambiar entonces me parece que es muy importante y quizás sería una buena pregunta para hacerse uno por lo menos cada tres días ¿no? yo siento que eso ayudaría a mejorar esa dana pero también siento que con una restricción y no es como tampoco entregarse a la oración ¿sí? o a la meditación por temor a la muerte sino también pensando como en algo más grande
sí, solo pues eso como que es importante tampoco que por miedo no termine operando porque entonces no sería sincero. Como, como eso, y que es bueno como hacer también ese Vale, Cristina, muchas gracias. Joy, that was a wonderful comment. I wish my Spanish wasn't so rusty. I could talk with her directly because there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, so the video, the recording, uh, because it came from the translation, none of that's going to be here. I could try to quickly recap what Radhamadhava did. He said she was saying at first that she um, feels compassion for all these people who suffer, especially in her country from the COVID and everything that comes with that and that she has lost some of her close relatives um, recently. I'm not sure to, if to COVID or otherwise, but she's lost them and that, that made her um, get more serious about her sadhana. And uh, she was saying that it'd be a good, um, good kind of like a exercise for devotees to focus on the fact that we you know to talk, like think about death even daily or every couple of days or something and uh, i definitely agree with that like the, the buddhists actually do that they have this constant meditation on the impermanence and and the death of their particularly their own body i mean they they take it to the whole next level they think about how their own body is going to decompose and all these worms come and eat, eat you up and stuff i wouldn't go that far necessarily but well, I don't know if it works for you, but it seems a little gory, I guess. But yeah, very much uh, appreciate the point. And then I did want to mention, you said, uh, Radhamadhav, you were kind of like, in some ways saying that you're not sure if it's good that you feel compassion. I, maybe I misread that, but if that's what you said, I think it's beautiful that you uh, you're, have a soft heart like that. And it's true that that might be a little bit in the circle of concern in the way that you can't do anything. But But if you try to harness that compassion to... A devotional context and it's a, it's a very beautiful thing and i mean there's obviously nothing wrong about feeling compassion that's that's beautiful in itself as long yeah as long as it doesn't take you away from the path of bhakti which can happen if your compassion is misapplied but if it's not problematic like that then i think it's a beautiful thing in itself there's a couple of long comments in the uh section in the chat section in spanish i Brajhari's comment, I actually put in the Google Translate and see, let's see how well that went. Oh, it turned it into, oh, let's see here. Oh, maybe it's better, Kaliyuka Bhavana, that you uh, translate it, because uh, Google Translate is pig Latin.
Yeah. <laughs> oh, no worries. No, no it's going great. It's going great. No problem at all. I quickly wanted to just say Rajahari's comment for the people who didn't hear the translation uh, in the during for the recording. He was saying that Sri Shukrari Maharaj mentions uh, negative impetus and positive impetus and the thinking about death and these like uh, suffering and stuff that's that's really the idea behind the negative impetus and basically it's like Maya Dev's service is the negative impetus to like try to push us towards bhakti and that's a very nice point of course and death really does work in that way like, like Socrates said that death is possibly the the greatest of human blessings. And I think he meant exactly what uh, Rajhari is saying there, that it's a blessing because it forces us to really focus on our actual values and what we what's like important in life. And then Bindu Matisaki had a very, very nice comment here in the chat section. She was saying how uh, her mother died and that really made her understand how she uh, has basically she will live for the right thing and that inspired her to live for the right thing and um let's see here uh yeah th that was the main point and I, I really want to thank bindu matisaki for a nice comment um uh, it made my day just for you to say that you feel like this is good sado song that that means a lot to me and then martin oh martin said he had to leave yeah so that's that and uh, if any, it's actually 9.45 already. I mean, in, not there, but it's like one hour and 15 minutes in. So I think, I think we better stop here. And if anybody has any questions or comments, let's uh, save them for the next session. And uh, thanks so much for being with us, being with me. And we'll return next week. Jai. Shiva Gurudev ki jai. Shiva Shnav Sangha ki jai. Gaur Pramananda Haribo. Guru Nishta Prabhu ki jai. Jai.